Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. I'll be bringing you the latest science news this week along with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansel. Coming up, new hope for spinal cord injury sufferers from food colouring. One of the major reasons that an injury to the spinal cord is so devastating is because when you do the injury it's not just the lesion itself the physical damage to the spinal cord that causes a lot of the disability and deficit that follows in fact what happens is that a lot of inflammation ensues and more damage is done because things swell up the physics that decides the size of raindrops for the same rate of rain whichever the shower shower you went under it would be the same you can have rain produced in all sorts of different ways different heights in the clouds and always this distribution was the same plus lord drayson the government science minister tells us about the future of science in the uk science is vitally important to the uk in part because one has to ask the question given the way in which the world's developing given the uk's position in 2009 in that world what are the things which the uk is going to be particularly good at what is it we're going to earn our living in as a country? That's all on the way. Now, first up this week to the subject of spinal cord injuries and also brainstem and brain injuries in general, strokes, for example. They're pretty devastating because the brain has a limited ability to repair itself. But one of the major reasons that an injury to the spinal cord is so devastating is because when you do the injury it's not just the lesion itself the physical damage to the spinal cord that causes a lot of the disability and deficit that follows in fact what happens is that a lot of inflammation ensues and more damage is done because things swell up and because there is already a damage which damages other onward bits of the nervous system so researchers have been looking at a way to try and restore or prevent this secondary damage and a group of researchers at the university of rochester led by macon nedegaard what they've got is a paper in the journal PNAS this week showing that a food colouring that's used to dye food blue, in fact this colouring is called Brilliant Blue G, and it's a relative of another food dye, which is called FD&C Blue Dye Number 1. Who would have believed it? But what you can do with this stuff is to significantly reduce the amount of this secondary damage that happens when there is damage to the nervous system. What this group of researchers have found in recent years is that the reason you get this secondary damage is that when part of the central nervous system is injured, you get a release of a family of chemicals called purines, including one called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is actually a big energy molecule. Cells use it to get energy. But when it comes out of cells, it locks onto a chemical docking station on the surface of other cells in the nervous system. And those chemical docking stations are called P2X7 receptors. And when these purines lock on, what they do is to open up a very big pore, like a channel, which is on the surface of the cell. And this lets lots of calcium go into cells, and it makes the cells get very, very excited. And they go into a cycle, a sort of vicious cycle, if you like, which is called excitotoxicity. And this ultimately kills the cell. So what this group of researchers did was to look at the structure of uh, these particular receptors and said, well, if we can block them and stop this happening, we should stop the damage to the cells. And they found that these blue food dyes, which are already approved for use in, in various industries, including putting them into food so we can put them in our bodies, they actually block these receptors very effectively. So they did some experiments on rats that had spinal cord injuries and they were able to reduce the amount of damage the animals got after the injury. They were able to speed up the rate at which the animals got back some of their function following a spinal injury 
And when they did studies on the actual tissue that had been injured by the injury, uh, they found that the actual zone of damage was much, much smaller, consistent with this actually working and blocking this secondary damage. If these um, dyes are actually having quite a strong drug effect on your body, um, on the nerve cells, do you actually want to be eating them? Well, the difference is that normally these food dyes would be present in low concentrations and they would also be taken in through the diet. So therefore, the amount that would actually penetrate the tissue would be very low. In these animals, they gave them the drug via an intravenous route at a much higher dose. You can also do it orally, but you need a very big dose. And then it does get all around your body. In fact, this blue dye, when they studied the nervous system, they found that lots of areas, including the eye, went blue because it was penetrating all the tissue. But there is obviously that risk of a side effect, but then it shouldn't be too severe compared with what you've got to gain. So it sounds like that could be a new way of researching this in the future and helping people with those terrible conditions. Well, you've heard about putting a tiger in your tank, but now how about putting a shrimp in your tank? It doesn't sound quite so impressive, does it? Put a prawn in your tank. (laughs) But uh, indeed... um, doesn't sound quite so impressive, but it's exactly what some scientists in China have been doing in an attempt to make biodiesel production more efficient. Jinjeng Cheng and colleagues from the Huazong Agriculture University in Wuhan have discovered that shrimp shells could be a great improvement on the catalysts that we're already using to try and convert natural oils, that's from crops like soya, sunflowers and rapeseed, into diesel that we can use in vehicles and use them to drive around. How does it work? What do they actually do? Well, traditionally, what, what the process that's going essentially is called trends transesterification and essentially it just means we're changing the chemical makeup of fatty acids in the seed oils to convert them into a usable fuel and normally to do that it takes a very long time it's not really a a reaction that takes place very readily so a catalyst is needed and traditionally that's some kind of strong acid or a base but the problem with those traditional catalysts is that they get used up you can't reuse them and it involves lots and lots of water actually to to sort of to use those types of catalysts so this new idea is to use shrimp shells Um, The good thing about them is that they can be reused and they don't need tonnes and tonnes of water because obviously that's another limited resource, something we've got to think about using. We can't just use it as if it's free and hugely abundant. And uh, and it does seem to work. It does seem to actually um, increase the rate of this reaction so you can create... um, this biofuel from these crops and it happens really quite efficiently. After three hours they converted 89% of a sample of canola oil into biodiesel and they, they point out, these guys point out that it's biodegradable. It's quite cheap because it's actually, these are a byproduct of the seafood industry. We've got shells that we throw off the seafood that we like to eat all the time. And it's quite interesting, I've actually got the paper here, if you had a look at the, a picture of this stuff that the, the shells are made of and it's mainly chitin, that stuff that our nails and, and hair is made of but the structure of it inside the the the, um, the shrimp shells is very granular. You can see it's yeah, it's almost it like a, a kind of surface area. It's got a very big surface area. It's sort mm. of this grainy, um, porous structure, and that's how it's made in the shrimp. And so that's really good for a catalyst because you need a surface area for it to for the reaction to take place on. Really, so naturally, so it's they, looking they like a good sort of. burn these things partially to get them down to a sort of carbon skeleton of that. Presumably, that's right, le- leaving yeah. this very big surface mm-hmm. area. Exactly. That's essentially what they do, and it's quite a simple process. It doesn't take too much energy. It doesn't have to be heated up too much. Um, so you know, maybe. Maybe this could help in making biofuels a bit more efficient because obviously the biofuel debate rages on. It's a very controversial thing as to whether we should be planting crops and making fuels out of them, but it could be part of the debate on how to make... um Make, make less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere from our, from our own vehicles. 
Thanks, Helen. Now, in the 19th century, scientists studied all sorts of odds and ends, and one of the things they looked at was raindrop sizes. Some of them would go out and get a big piece of blotting paper, put it outside during a rainstorm, and then have a look at the size of different raindrops. They found that whilst a few of the raindrops were above 5 millimetres across, most of them were quite small, less than a millimetre. What was really, really strange was that the same sort of heaviness of rain, the same rate of rainfall, this distribution was always the same. So just explain what that means for a second. So you've got the same range of raindrop sizes, no matter how hard it's pelting. So say a couple of percent of them would be five millimetres across, 50% of them three millimetres across, etc, etc. Which sounds a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because you think when it rains really hard, you'd expect that to be massive raindrops. Well, the the, the distribution did change between different rates of rain, but for the same rate of rain, whichever the shower shower you went under, it would be the same. You can have rain produced in all sorts of different ways, different heights in the clouds, and always this distribution was the same. Now, people thought this might be because the big raindrops were hitting each other, but people had done maths and discovered that they shouldn't hit each other. There's not enough rain in the sky for them to hit each other enough for them to balance out. Now, Manuel Vilmo at the old Marseille University might have worked out what was going on. He saw an effect which you see in a diesel engine when you squirt droplets of fuel very, very fast into air. What happens is some of those droplets, they flatten out as they go faster and faster and faster. And eventually they get so flat they sort of turn into a parachute, they sort of blow up into a bubble and they pop. And he thought that the same thing might be happening with rain. It's actually an effect I've seen in a kitchen science experiment once. I was going to say, because when you were making rockets, <laughs> yeah, I was make- you made some fast footage. Yeah, I did a high-speed a- video of a um, water rocket. As Some of the droplets came down, and just before one of the last ones on the video hit the ground, it sort of blew up into this beautiful bubble and then popped. I, didn't, I thought this was weird, but I didn't think it had anything important about it. But apparently, um, according to Manuel, this is what he thinks is happening in rain. He's, he's done lots of experiments with it, and the distribution of drops you get from these expo- these poppings of these sort of parachutes is exactly what you see in rain. So the reason you get that normal distribution of raindrop sizes is because all the big ones fragment into slightly smaller ones. The slightly smaller ones may then fragment into even smaller ones, and, and in the process they're giving off lots of little ones. And, and the little tiny ones start sticking themselves together again, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until they go pop. And they haven't actually seen this in rain yet, but there are people flying around in planes as we speak looking, in, uh, looking at raindrops falling and, and through And dare sky. I ask, Dave, this is important because... It's yeah, understanding how rain works is an important thing. Rain is very important. If we understand it more, then it might help. Well, I'm going to stick with water, but going to the salty water for my second story, which is all about how all the swimming things in the oceans might actually contribute to the same amount of mixing in the oceans as all the winds and tides put together because they're swimming around and stirring up the sea. And that's all according to Kakani Katija and John Dabiri from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena across in the States. And their study appeared this week in the journal Nature. And it could mean that uh, climate modellers have really been missing quite an important part of the puzzle. Now, what they got up to, these guys, was they first used computer models to look at a process in which when a body moves through a fluid, it actually pulls some of that fluid with with it. Um, And the more sticky or viscous that fluid is, the more of it's pulled along. And this was actually an idea first reported 50 years ago by Charles Darwin. No, not Charles Darwin himself, but his grandson. Uh, And, uh, well, he was a Charles Darwin, but yes, another one. And the computer model showed that even tiny plankton can pull up to four times its own volume 
volume through a water just by moving a few body lengths. Then this is the part of the research that I wish I had been involved in. They set off for Palau, a lovely um, island in the Pacific, where there are these wonderful tropical lakes um, with jellyfish in them. And they're not being crazy by jumping in with these guys because these actually have evolved to have no stings at all. And I would love to visit them. They look absolutely fantastic. And they went along there and they squirted luminous dye behind the jellyfish and filmed them with special laser-equipped underwater cameras and watched what was going on with the water. And it turned out that um, about 90% of the water movement came down to Darwin's theory about it being pulled along as these jellyfish are swimming along in the water. And the big question is, how does this translate to a global scale? Sure, what difference does it make? Why, does it, why is it important? Yeah, I mean, we, this, these guys haven't sort of specifically scaled this up yet. They're just showing that it's going on. And various researchers have wonder, are wondering at the moment, you know, will this actually make a difference? But, but theoretically, if you do think about the number and uh, the diversity of different things swimming through the ocean, um, it could well make a difference. There's actually, in nature as well this week, there's a, an oceanographer, William Dewar, writes a really interesting commentary of this study. So you can go along and have a look at that too. And he points out that actually you don't need very much energy to mix up the oceans. They're, they're not being that mixed up that much. If you go just a little bit under the ocean surface and take a cubic kilometre of ocean to mix it up the amount that it does naturally would only take a kitchen blender hand blender. That's the only amount of energy that the, that the waves and everything else is moving the water around. So really, maybe together all these jellyfish and plankton and everything else that's swimming, the fish that's swimming through the sea, could actually make a significant contribution by this effect of dragging water along with them. And I certainly think it's very interesting to think that life is having an effect on the world around us. Thank you, Helen. And incidentally, we've actually got some video of that footage of those jellyfish swimming with the dye being squirted behind them on our website at nakedscientist.com. So check that out if you want to have a look. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now, also in the news this week, the Babraham Institute, which is located just outside Cambridge, have opened a new laboratory. And so we sent Ben Vowsler down there to attend the opening and also find out what was going on. He's with us to tell us a bit about it now. Hello, Ben. Hello. Um, so what was this new centre all about? Well, this is the Institute's new bioscience support unit. It's cost £17 million to build and a further £5 million to equip. And it contains some state-of-the-art technology, including some funky robots that I was watching. The Babraham Institute itself researches various biological mechanisms, how they work, how they sometimes go wrong. And this gives us some insight into things like the causes of cancer, the causes of heart disease, and actually the way that we age as well. Now, this sort of research underpins development of new therapies. And this new bioscience support unit will not only make the research easier and more accurate and quicker, but it's actually designed in such a way to be really flexible, which makes the whole thing future-proof and should secure that investment for a good while yet. The Babraham Institute itself is funded by the BBSRC, that's a Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council. They get their money from the UK government, and Lord Drayson, who's the science minister, was there to open the unit. £22 million is a lot of investment, especially during a financial crisis like this one, but he believes that science is a priority. Science is vitally important to the UK, in part because one has to ask the question, Given the way in which the world's developing, given the UK's position in 2009 in that world, what are the things which the UK is going to be particularly good at? What is it we're going to earn our living in as a country? 
And the answer to that has to be science and the commercialization of science in terms of innovative new products and services. We can't succeed as a nation by competing on this, if you like, the low-tech side of, of life. Our contribution has to be from those areas where the intellectual contribution, that the in-depth understanding that we have shown over the decades Britain is particularly good at is our future. So my job as science minister is to raise the profile of science, to make heroes out of scientists and science entrepreneurs, to get the general public, who sometimes see science as a bit of an elitist endeavour, something that's done by a group of brainy people but doesn't really affect them, to understand that, that we as a nation have to be both scientifically literate, because science is going to be so important to our futures, but also comfortable in discussing some of the the big issues in science. And if we can do that, we can continue being a world leader in science. And if we maintain our position as a world leader in science, we will have, I believe, a happy and prosperous society. Lord Drayson also commended the Babraham Institute for engaging local schools and the wider community, because having a future-proof research facility is only any good if we have a good supply of future scientists. He said that there's one clear way to stay competitive in science in the future continue to invest in it and maintain our focus on excellence and making sure that we're maintaining a strong pipeline of young people coming through from the schools who get excited by science at school, that science enthusiasm maintained as they're growing up, studying science at universities and coming through to be the next generation of leading scientific researchers. If you can develop a sort of scientific approach to living life, of, of noticing things and asking questions, why is that like that? Even at the most, if you like, most mundane level. I mean, the thing that's fascinating me as science minister is that when you, you get to meet really brilliant scientists, it's often something early in their life that they noticed which actually got them switched on to science. And so the more that we can get people to make that switch go on, the more likely we'll have a you know, positive pipeline of young scientists coming forward, and that's going to be very important to our success as a country. So it now seems that doing kitchen science experiments with your children is both fun and it's patriotic. That was Lord Drayson at the opening of the Babraham Institute's new bioscience support unit. It's pretty impressive. You've got to talk to him. I think that's fantastic. I was quite honoured, actually, and he was really nice. He was very down-to-earth. You, you didn't get the impression that you know he was there to see the little people at the opening or something. He was very much with us, very much supporting what they were doing, very much supporting science in the UK. Thank you very much. That was Ben Vowsler, who went down to the Babraham Institute where they opened the new facility this week. That's all we have time for in this Naked Scientist newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. Thank you also to our guest, Lord Drayson. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by Laura Soule and me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where each week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.